The kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not as a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul. It is not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance of success. The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. It is also this hope, above all, that gives us the strength to live and continually to try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do here and now. That piece of music called Ubi Caritas was sung by a group I was with in El Salvador last week. Half of us were from the United States and half of us were El Salvadorians. We had never sung together before and we had never sung that song before. And someone secretly recorded us. And I think the power of the harmonies of a group who had never sung that song before was very impactful. The words are in Latin, and the words translate to mean, where charity and love abide, God is there. So let me tell you the context of why we were singing together, because I made a promise to share this story. 
So it was last Monday night, just not even a week ago, that I came back from a trip to El Salvador, which is a small country, if you don't know, it's in Central America, and it has been a, a part of the violence for nearly a century. Although the official date of the Civil War began there in 1980, when the government assassinated Archbishop Rome, uh, Oscar Romero. Most of you know that many of the refugees coming from Central America to the United States are fleeing violence in their home countries. So I went to El Salvador with the Unitarian Universalist College of Social Justice to learn more about what was happening there. Each day we attended a workshop in the morning and then in the afternoon we did trips to sites that were made famous for the violence that was committed there. So it was just last Saturday, we drove up into the mountains and we ended in a village called El Mazote. We met with the villagers there and we met with about 10 members of the El Mazote Remembrance Association and they told us their story. So back in 1982, the, the military, the government military, came to the small village they were living in and rounded up 1,000 of the people. The military had been trained at the United States School of the Americas, and they were tasked to use a scorch-earth tactic. This meant that to overcome the guerrilla rebels that were living in the mountains, they were to destroy everything in the village that could possibly aid the guerrillas. So they destroyed the buildings and the fields, and they slaughtered all the animals, and they killed all the people, including the children, because they could grow up to be rebels someday. At one of the mass graves where we visited, it was excavated next to the church. There were over 420 children found. We listened as members of the El Mazate Remembrance Association listed those they had lost, their brothers and their sisters, their mothers and fathers and cousins. These victims we were talking with had managed to hide and then flee the area. And no one inhabited that village for over 10 years after the massacre before they started trickling back to the area and reconnecting. They now formed an association and they're actively pursuing government recognition of what happened to their town and their relatives, demanding that the violence done to them cannot begin to be healed until the government admits the truth of what happened and begins the steps of reconciliation that need to occur. They shared their stories with me and my fellow travelers, asking that we come back here and tell their story to our congregations so the memory of their trauma not be forgotten, that it be acknowledged and it be honored. So the song you heard, Ubi Caritas, was our heartfelt response as we stood in a circle giving witness to the suffering that we were witnessing. So I wish I could give you a message of hope along with this story, but it's actually hard for me. As I drove back from the village, I couldn't help but think of the many atrocities that have happened in my lifetime in Bosnia, Rwanda, Cambodia, Guatemala, Myanmar, along with countless wars, the constant displacement of indigenous people off their lands, and oppression of racial and cultural groups. It doesn't make me feel very hopeful. Miguel de la Torre, 
who's a Latinx theologian and philosopher, directly approaches the story about hope. Speaking from his identity means he's not part of the dominant culture that colonized this country. When Europeans invaded the Americas, they did so under their belief in manifest destiny, convinced they were bringing in God's kingdom as they destroyed the savages who were excluded from Christians' heaven and therefore they were denied human rights. The optimism of the European culture, their assurance that they were doing God's work, which would reward them a place in the future afterlife, was not an optimism that could be shared by the millions who lived here first. De La Torre argues that hope and optimism are false beliefs, that only people who can indulge in them are those who are part of the dominant culture that live in comfort and who expect to continue lives where they don't have to worry about food or shelter or health drive. Our privilege is it allows us to look forward to a future. But those who face daily survival are not able to see past today or tomorrow and hold no real expectation that their future may be any better. The majority of the world we live in is finds itself in hopelessness, founded on the generations of suffering and abuse found in their historical narrative. De La Torre writes the following. I find myself disagreeing with Martin Luther King Jr who, quoting the 19th century abolitionist, Reverend Theodore Parker, often said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is not long, nor does it bend toward anything at all, because history lacks an arc. The universe is amoral, and an absence of salvation history means there is no bending toward justice. The cosmos is no more intent on improvement than it is hell-bent on self-destruction. Basically, he's arguing that hope is a delusion. We want to believe things are getting better in the world and we need to believe this lie in order to comfort ourselves and in order to keep doing our part of the work for social justice. How does this make you feel? I mean, how do you feel? Not what you think, but what is it that you experience when you hear a statement like that? When I first heard him talk three years ago, I just felt this darkness in, the, in my gut. It echoes the despair that sometimes overwhelms me, and it really scares me. So do you agree with De La Torre? I don't like what he's saying. It feels very negative to me. But can I really argue with his perspective? He's describing the experience of being part of a culture that has struggled to survive. And he's not wrong. Just look at what we've done in this country and to the world and to our planet. So let me talk about hope a little bit more this morning. And I'll tell you right now that I don't actually have any clarity about the theology of hope or hopelessness. For me, it's a dilemma that I struggle with. I do not want to believe in hopelessness, but I don't want to delude myself with a false hope either. So let me just throw out some thoughts, and you can hold these 
You can feel these and see how you come out on it. Here's one thought. Hope is not a form of optimism. Optimism is based on an assumption of triumph that in the end all will work itself out. But optimism can only be a mindset if you live in a place of privilege. It's a luxury item. Only those of us who live in comfort can afford. Hope is different. Hope is actually based on uncertainty. It doesn't presume an outcome of good that all will be well. It is a possibility, although not the inevitability of a better way. Optimism often requires a naivete, but hope is more honest and less reassuring. To live with hope requires we get used to living in discomfort. Here's another thought. I've been raised in the liberal religious community and have always been taught to believe in the upward trajectory of history, that long arc of the moral universe, that things are getting better. And just as a side, does everyone know that Reverend Theodore Parker was a Unitarian who first said that, had that statement? I've been led to believe in the human capacity to make a difference. It's very important for, to me to believe I can make a difference. At the same time, can I acknowledge that my social location, meaning the security that I have from the savings in my bank account and from the education that I have, have biased this belief? Because deep inside I am anxious that the financial security that I currently have has benefited from the oppression of others and from the destruction of this planet. So here's another thought. Hope is based on the premise of uncertainty. We don't actually know what will happen. And that spaciousness of uncertainty gives us room to act. Over my lifetime, I've been involved in many protests and marches, boycotts and actions. And by the time I entered seminary, I was disillusioned because I felt like none of these things had made any difference at all. I was looking for something better, some new way to do justice work that would help me to see that change was happening, to make me feel my efforts were worth it. And no one in seminary seemed to have an answer for me. No one could tell me a new strategy. Then about two years ago, I was driving across the country from New York City to Prescott, Arizona, as I was returning from my internship. And I listened to the audio version of Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark. If you have not read it, I recommend it highly. She acknowledges, she's very open about all the ways we have harmed the planet and the people, but she also holds out that wildly, unimaginably magnificent things have been happening around us, but we often forget to notice because we're so focused on what we have to do next. She says, remember what else the 21st century has brought, including the movements, heroes, and shifts in consciousness. Among them, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Idle No More, The Dreamers Addressing the Dream Act and Immigration Rights, Edward Snowden and the Movement for Corporate and Government Transparency, The Push for Marriage Equality, a resurgent feminist movement, economic justice movements addressing, and in many cases, raising minimum wage, and a dynamic climate justice movement in the intersections among them all. 
This has been a truly remarkable decade for movement building, social change, and deep, profound shifts in ideas, perspectives, and frameworks for broad parts of the population. We often forget to give credit for what we've done and for what's happened so far. We don't tell the stories of our successes quite enough, and we don't give ourselves enough credit for the actions we have taken. The stories we tell about who we were and what we have done shape what we can and will do. Solnit says we need litanies or resuscitations about our successes so we have landmarks that can guide us on our way. And she tells many stories to illustrate her point. And it was when she was telling her stories, I had one of those awe-inspiring moments when I fully grasped what she was saying. She listed actions like the two million people who gathered in Central Park in New York City in 1982 to demand nuclear weapons freeze. And although it took 10 years, this action was the impetus that led to a successful negotiation. I had been part of that demonstration. She talked about the activism that in 2005 closed the Peabody Western Coal Corporation that had mined on the Navajo Hopi land, contaminating the air, draining the water aquifers, and destroying vast sections of Black Mesa. I had been part of the protests in the 1990s that began that change. Then she talked about the Shimbacha tribe of the Shoshone people, whose traditional land in Death Valley, California, was occupied by the National Park Service, displacing them off land they had lived on for centuries. After years of protests and political action, the Timbersha people were finally acknowledged and reinstated onto their land. I had been active in the marches shutting down the roads in Death Valley. Solnit told those stories, a chill went through my body because I had not been, even been aware that there was a victory. I never knew that we had won. I suddenly found that my small, insignificant action had actually been part of a bigger action that was successful. While I had been feeling despondent that nothing had changed, I had missed the stories of success. We need to acknowledge the unimaginable when it happens because it gives hope that we can change. Hope is uncertain. We don't know if what we are doing will make a difference, but we do it anyway. Evidence that sometimes we win encourage us to keep going, not to stop. And here's another thought. We have some grounds for hope. Each of us already does daily acts of rebellion, acts to change the world. Every time we offer our time to social, spiritual, or political organizations, we are offering an alternative to the consumerist society. We engage in rebellion whenever we do things for free, for love, or based on principle. And we respond to disasters in startling ways, not with the chaos and despair so many predict, but over and over we respond with agency, with passion, and with the sense that anything is possible. These are the grounds for hope. So I stand here before you 
with this dilemma. Am I deluding myself with hope? Am I ignoring the reality of the vast numbers of people who are suffering? So does it actually have to be a choice? Hope or hopelessness? Or can we accept both? Can we live in uncertainty and accept that both of these realities exist at the same time? So I'm suggesting that there's a different kind of hope. It listens to the truth of the history of the marginalized people. It is not the belief that everything is all right or it will eventually be all right. This type of hope looks for path forward that steers through the false narratives we have learned in our culture of comfort. It is a hope that exists alongside our willingness to engage the world without looking away when we hear the disquieting stories of a village massacre. And it is the type of hope that avoids slipping into self-defense. This is active hope. It requires our presence. To go back to Reverend Theodore Parker's description of the arc of the moral universe, it may not bend towards justice on its own, but I believe if we add our weight to the end of that arc, we might be able to bend it toward justice. We add our weight by being both aware of hopelessness and continuing to be engaged. De La Torre says, do not offer me your words of hope, offer me your praxis of justice. Do not shower me with reminders of God's future promises. Show me God's present grace through your loving mercy. In other words, real hope means we must be actively engaged in changing the world, each of us doing our part to make hope a reality. Caritas Day.